Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Van Maren Show. Today, we're going to be talking to longtime pro-life activist, literature professor, and author Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior. That's coming right up. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking to my friend, Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior. She is a literature professor at Liberty University. She recently took a job at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's the author of a number of wonderful books. My wife is obsessed with her first book, which is called Booked, Literature, and the Soul of Me. My personal favorite is still uh, True Convictions, her biography of the abolitionist Hannah Moore, William Wilberforce's female counterpart. And her most recent book, uh, On Reading Well, describes how we can learn virtue from literature. What many people don't know about Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior is that she also has a long career in the pro-life movement. Uh, I keep on reading these uh, history books of Operation Rescue and the pro-life movement, and uh, almost every single one of them mentions her work and things she did. I've gone through all old boxes of pro-life files and right-to-life offices uh, in places like even Vancouver, and I'll always find these press releases and these misses with her name on it. And so I'm really excited to have Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior on the show to talk about her experiences in the pro-life movement and how she believes literature can help us in the abortion debate. So without further introduction from me, this is my conversation with Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior. So just to start off, um, your, your journey into the pro-life movement is really, really interesting. And most people, um, as you can tell from the chatter online, are kind of unaware of the fact that you were arrested in front of abortion clinics um, for trying to block the doors with Operation Rescue back in the day um, to get in between the women and the abortionists. And your views on pro-life strategy have evolved over time. But maybe start off by kind of giving us a, a few details on your journey into the pro-life movement. And for the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, one of the reasons I bring this up is because in the last six months, I've read three uh, books written by secular journalists on the history of the pro-life movement, and your name cropped up in all three. What basically happened is that I'm a, I was a Christian who had just never really thought much about abortion, um, other than knowing a couple of um, classmates who had one and felt pressured to do so and didn't appreciate it. And so... I was not uh, a fan mm -hmm. of it, but I think I had more libertarian kinds of leanings. So just didn't think about it much at all in terms of whether it should be legal or not. Um, just that I would never have one. And I wish that my friends hadn't been pressured to have, have them. Um, and uh, so uh, my little country Baptist church was having a crisis pregnancy co center come and, and do a presentation. And so um, their presentation included a screening on a little tiny black and white television on, a, on an actual metal cart, <laughs> um, uh, it, it, a screening of The Silent Scream, the film by um, narrated and produced by Bernard Nathanson, the former abortionist um, who became pro-life largely through watching what happens on an, uh, in an abortion through the ultrasound technology. And so it was just a sort of an instantaneous thing for me. I, I, I actually was sitting in the back of the church and couldn't really see what was on the screen. So even though there was a visual there, it was really hearing the narration and hearing right, right. what was happening and 
I just remember that moment like, oh, I just never knew abortion was so inherently violent to not just the unborn child, but even the woman's body. And my first response was at that moment was, I want to help women not have to make that decision. And so eventually I became a volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. And then we heard through them that Operation Rescue was coming to town. My, my pastor and uh, church got involved. I felt compelled uh, and convicted to be involved. My husband did not. Um, it took a little while longer for him to come around, but when, once he did, I knew that we were united. I knew it was the Lord moving us and not just my own, you know, human passion and, um, and uh, it could, you know, just my own, uh, it wasn't just my own convictions. It was really the Lord leading us. And so um, when uh, Operation Rescue came to our city, um, my husband and I went with a group of I don't even, you know, dozens of people, I think we're in two different locations and uh, went inside a clinic that was in a high rise building um, inside, inside there and just sat in the hallway that morning, um, singing hymns and praying until the police carried us away. That was my first arrest. Now, what's really interesting about the, the Operation Rescue Movement is there's different strains inside of it. And so there was there was one theory was we're going to repeat what the civil rights movement did. And people forget the civil rights movement hadn't been it wasn't that long ago when 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 the uh, Operation Rescue started up. And then the second strain, which is, is still practiced by a very small handful of people like Dr. Monica Miller, um, who we've had on before, is just the idea of, of, of standing in solidarity with people in the moment of greatest peril. So. Um, her, her her perspective is that um, I'm there to be with the babies when they need me the most and whether or not I'm capable of saving them is irrelevant to my responsibility to be there. And both of those strains informed the Operation Rescue that you were part of. And the, the strategy was split largely along denominational lines. You had a lot of the hippie Catholics who cut their teeth on activism and bomb, banned the bomb marches that were more of the solidarity types and the strategy of, like, let's clog the jail cells and refuse to give our names in solidarity with the unborn. That was more of the evangelical crowd. So which strain did you fit into? It was more the evangelical one that you described, where we refused to give our names. We would go limp um, in order to, you know, clog up the process more. We, it was, you know, uh, nonviolent resistance. Um, we had training. We had people um, who were involved in the civil rights movement come to our city and give us training and workshops eventually. Um, that I didn't have that before that, that first rescue, but as it, as it grew larger, we did that. Um, so the idea of not giving names, going limp, just clogging up um, the system in order to delay and, uh, and to... Um, you know, just cause the whole system of justice to um, be interrupted, uh, and that you know that that's that's the the heritage of the civil rights movement. But mm -hmm. but you're the historian, and you talking about that other strain. I think it helps me to see how. I mean, that was there for me as well because obviously we weren't preventing abortions from taking place. Um, most of the women who probably didn't get appointments that day that we were there, they were free to reschedule and come again. Uh, of course, it gave them the opportunity to, to think more about it, to ch possibly change their minds, to seek help. And we know that that happened. Um, but there is just something important and powerful about being there. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what I felt when I was sidewalk counseling or just outside praying. Even, you know, many times the clinics were 
constructed in such a way, especially later on when they built new ones, so that even if we were in our public space that the Constitution allows us to be in, it was very, it's very difficult or impossible to actually have communication with patients going in. And so you j just being there, being a presence to me is important. Um, and I just, even if women didn't change, I, because of my work in the Crisis Pregnancy Center, where I, I, we saw so many post-abortive women, women who'd already had abortions, um, and one of the things that they would say so often was, I wish someone had been there. Why wasn't, right. why didn't someone tell me? Right. And, and maybe, maybe they still would have gone through with it, but it was just that responsibility of being there so that a woman could, so that someone would be there for her. So she couldn't say later on that no one was there for her. That's a huge responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I, that I wanted to, to ask you specifically is because one of the things that frustrates me about the current pro-life movement in its entirety is precisely what you referred to earlier. We seem to have a very short memory. So you'll have um, people come forward and say, like, well, why aren't we just doing everything that it takes in the name of Jesus? The pro-life movement's failed because it hasn't done that. I'm like, well, only if you only know about the last five years, right? Like that's over 70,000 arrests during the history of Operation Rescue, almost double the amount of, of, of the civil rights movement, right? If you go back, Lincoln once said that history serves to remind us that our new ideas aren't new and aren't ours. And I always find that when there's a strategy debate in the pro-life movement today, it's probably already happened before. And some of the very people they could be accusing of not doing enough might be doing the thing they're advocating for us to do now. And one of the things I'm, I'm most interested in, and your example is you were, you were a liberal arts student, which makes you kind of an unlikely person to be involved in something that's now considered to be a really forward conservative type of movement led by Randall Terry and formed by uh, people like Francis Schaefer. What was the thought process like for you that actually made you willing to get arrested and your husband to get arrested? Although having met both of you, I actually, no offense, but can much more easily see your husband doing something like that because he's kind of like a, he's a really manly guy. So him standing in between, you know, um, that, that's something that, you know, you it seems more in character for him than for you. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a fair enough question. And, um, you know, that there are kind of two answers to it. One is I, I, I don't want to take more credit than, than is owed to me because, um, I was somewhat naive there. I was a new, um, graduate student in a PhD program at a very secular, very liberal university. And I, this, this was when political correctness and all that goes along with it was sort of on the rise. I was naive enough to think, hey, people disagree, you know, and I'm an activist and we can disagree with one another, but activism is cool. <laughs> you know, people, you know, as long as you're passionate and trying to change the world, even if you disagree, that's a, that's, that's good. And I learned pretty quickly um, that no, that is, that was not the case. And I, I really was naive. I really didn't understand how uh, the depth of hostility um, that would be directed toward me and toward the pro-life movement or just how abortion is so important to many political and um, ideological movements. I mean, it's not just an issue. It is, you know, I mean, others have said it, it is like a sacrament. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I got an education in that way. Um, but the other, the other thing is, um, even though I'm not, you know, strong and manly like my husband, <laughs> um, I am, you know, I, I am uh, 
my, uh, you know, my strongest gift, spiritual gift is prophecy. Um, and that has to do with, you know, it's not foretelling the future, but it's seeing um, things generally in, in kind of black and white and right, knowing, right. you know, right from wrong and feeling very, very convicted about those things. And the fact that I'm a liberal arts student, um, you know, uh, English in particular, as you pointed out, does make for an interesting combination. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually believe that there's some, that I'm almost hardwired um, in a way that to have those sort of competing tensions. So I love literature and the humanities and the liberal arts because it helps to moderate my own tendency to see things in black and white and to, to have that, those strong convictions. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an ambivert and I'm double handed and I, you know, use right and left hand. So I think there are just things about my personality that are to both tend toward the black and white and also tend toward the nuance. And all those things came together in this issue because abortion is a very black and white issue to me in the sense of this is a human life um, being deprived of life for no reason at all. Mm -hmm. uh, no good reason, no justifiable reason in 98% of the cases or more. Um, yet at the same time, um, I understand that we live in a culture that makes it okay, that, that has seared the conscience and has um, victimized women as well because we, our culture says that it's okay and, and we are shaped by our, our culture and our values and we can become blind to the truth uh, because of the, the lies that we live in every day. And so I, I, I see all the sides and yet still have these, these strong convictions. So it's interesting, the word convictions is the title of the book that I was just reading earlier that you're cited in quite frequently by, by a journalist. Um, his, his full name escapes me for the moment, but it's, it's a very good book. Uh, it's called Absolute Convictions. It's about the abortion wars in Buffalo. And it's a very good book because he tries to be scrupulously fair. He can't quite totally get outside his own biases, but you can tell he's making a very solid effort uh, to do so. And one of the things that was interesting in that book is he actually talked about uh, your struggles while you were going to university and working as a pro-life activist and, and quite a high profile one eventually, right? You actually got a letter from, from Mother Teresa in the early 1990s when you invited her to come to, to, to one of the rescues. How did the, the backlash to your pro-life activism have an impact on your education, which is kind of getting us to where we talk about how literature can impact the, the pro-life debate? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, there was a very practical impact uh, in the sense that here I was uh, trying to work on a PhD, which is hard enough in itself, but I was involved not only in, you know, my weekly activism outside the clinics on a regular basis, but um, then court cases involving my arrests. I also kind of took on a volunteer role as being a court liaison between all the other pro-lifers who were getting arrested and the lawyers that were volunteering their services. Um, so I played that role as, as just helping uh, those, those court cases along. Um, but then, then what I talked about before about the hostility, I mean, it was just not a popular or good thing to be doing in a, a PhD program in English at a state university to be getting arrested for protesting abortion. Um, I, you know, I showed up, there was one, one semester when me getting dragged off by the police was on the evening news, big kind of close up of that happening. And uh, the professor that I had at the time was not happy with that. And um, so at, 
in the end of course evaluation, um, she um, basically stated that my grade went down from an A to a B probably because of my illegal anti-abortion activities, which really was, she should not have, you know, I mean, if I had been going through some personal crisis and my grade lowered, it shouldn't be something that, you know, she should be observing. She can just record my grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I did have, um, I was told that there were professors who did not want to serve on my dissertation committee because of my activism. Of course, those are the kinds of things that you can't really prove. Um, right, right. And yeah. And so it just, it was a, it was a hostile, difficult place for me to be. Um, and, uh, but it, you know, the Lord used it to refine me and to, um, and I think to help me to be better at understanding people of different views. Um, so it, it was difficult. If I were doing it all over again, I probably just, I, I don't think I, 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 I don't know what I would do. I think, I think I would be afraid to do what I did knowing now what I know. So I'm glad that the Lord just allowed me to be young and naive and just press forward. Yeah. No, it's kind of interesting you put it that way, because that's one of the famous quotes from one of the abolitionists, right? Is that the young, the young do not understand that certain things are impossible and it's the only reason they accomplish them. It's because you act on the courage of your convictions rather than thinking through strategically whether or not this is a good idea. And one of, one of the things that I'm interested in is because there's the, the, period of Operation Rescue, starting in the mid-80s and going up until uh, Bill Clinton uh, passed the FACE Act. And that was this period where anything seemed possible because you had tens of thousands of people out there. uh, They thought Roe was going to fall imminently because Reagan had stacked the court and they didn't realize at that point that his justices weren't going to do the job that they, they thought that they were going to. And then you have this period of massive disillusionment that separates that period from where we are now, because starting in the early 90s, you have that outbreak of violence where anti-abortion fanatics um, assassinated a number of abortion doctors and wounded some other people in the process. You have a couple of clinic bombings. The FACE Act knocks off uh, uh, Operation Rescue in terms of their ability to actually go outside the clinics. We realize that the Supreme Court isn't going to overturn Roe v. Wade and that this is going to be a decades-long slog of, of changing the culture. So what, as somebody who was there and was actually part of that, when you look at the pro-life movement today, and then you look at it back then, across this chasm of of events that happened, some of which were very damaging to the pro-life movement, I think, in objective uh, of PR terms, um, because some of the the fringe fanatics were known to other pro-lifers, and that's something that that, that people had to live with. What what do you notice uh, that's so different about the pro-life movement today, as it was back then? And do you think that intervening period and all the turbulence in between um, had a big impact? It, it, I think it all had an impact. I mean, the most immediate impact was the FACE Act. Um, I mean, again, I, I, one of the other things that I was doing constantly was testifying in court, um, federal court, district court. Um, our, ca- our case, local case, eventually went to the Supreme Court. Um, and, and, uh, and that is the case um, called Shank versus, Pro- Shank versus um, Pro-choice, the Pro-Choice Network. Right, right. Um, and that's a case that was one of the first ones to establish the bubbles outside the, the clinics where you could not, you cannot protest abortion. Um, it was just sort of like a partial, it was a, a, a partial victory for both sides. It was a complicated case. But um, so I spent a lot of time with, along with many others, in, in federal court testifying in order to 
um, resist the groundwork that was being laid for using federal law against pro-lifers. I mean, basically, there are a number of strategies used even before FACE, including applying racketeering laws against pro-lifers because you, we were disrupting business. Um, and so um, I was heavily involved in all of that. So it was very, uh, it was a long process, but it was ultimately was very deflating because it was one thing to go in front of a clinic. Um, I mean, actually, most of the times that I was arrested was not for blocking in clinic. It was, they were basically trumped up charges um, of trespassing, right. uh, which the abortion providers would use to kind of get you out of the way for the day. You go sit, you know, in the cell for a little while to someone, your lawyer comes and gets you out and then the day's over. Um, so it was just sort of a harassment um, strategy. Uh, and so that it's one thing to have to be arrested or charged or even convicted of a, a minor um, violation or even a misdemeanor. It's another thing when it becomes a felony act that could, you know, garnish your wages for the rest of your life or have your home taken from you. I right. mean, obviously it, it sounds bad, I guess, to say, you know, oh, that's not, that's not a price that's worth paying. Um, but no matter what the price is, you have to count the cost and yeah. you have to count the cost even as you're developing strategies, because um, that may not be a cost that, that is uh, a good investment for the movement and for, you know, for the long term. Um, there are some who've made, who paid such prices. Um, so having the federal laws change was a huge blow um, and then, but for me personally, I think it was more, uh, and I have written about this, I don't know if that this was something you were going to bring up, but it was actually um, having, being woken up in the middle of the night by one of the news stations and being told that one of the abortion doctors that I had protested, we had all protested, had been murdered in his home by a sniper. Um, and that was Bart Slepian, correct? And James Kopp was the assassin. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so that, you know, I mean, ultimately, of course, the person who's responsible for that assassination is the assassin. Um, but as I was saying before, we are part of a culture, we are part of a community. And so there was, you know, a lot of soul searching uh, about what, what is the pro-life, what is our language, our behavior, our actions, the implications of our logic, what, it, what kind of message is it sending? We need to be consistent in what we say and what we do. And I believe for the most part that we were, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously no, no movement is perfect. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that, that was a big, that was, um, something to really, um, think a lot about. And, um, by that time I actually already had been, um, questioning some of the strategies and the rhetoric of, uh, my fellow pro-lifers and had, um, kind of weaned myself a little bit away from the, from the street activism into more dialogue with uh, pro-choice supporters and abortion providers to try to, to talk about these issues and talk about different ways that we could find common ground, which is not, you know, compromise, but saying, where can we agree so that we can actually reduce abortion? Because for what, you know, people used to talk about making abortion rare. Right. And so, yeah, that's a, a long-winded answer to a complicated mm -hmm. question, but hopefully that lends some insight. No, no, for sure. And then, so, so where where I wanted to where I wanted to end up is because um, 
Interestingly, like a, a number of the books that you've written really do apply in, in some ways to the abortion debate. So you wrote a, a wonderful biography of Hannah Moore that I've interviewed uh, you about before. And the reason we found the book on Hannah Moore is because we were we were doing a course on social reform for our pro-life internship and we wanted to find other books on it. And that's how we found um, Hannah Moore. And then you have a recent book, too, on how literature can showcase virtue and teach virtue and can be a powerful educator on those sorts of things. And and both of those those books um, also lend themselves to the same point you make in that article in Christianity Today that I really wanted to talk about with you, which is the fact that 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 literature and poetry can be a, a powerful tool in the pro life quiver. So there's there's many different tactics, many different ways of educating people, and different tactics reach different people, right? Some people are are stunned when they see an, a picture of an abortion victim. Some people are moved by a conversation. Some people eventually change their mind over months because of a relationship that they formed with somebody, and that's the context that was necessary for them. But for some people, I I, I do really believe that that literature and poetry uh, can help them understand something in a way. Uh, in a unique way that even a, a photograph of an abortion victim um, or a long conversation wouldn't quite do because literature and poetry are unique. So how did you start developing that theory, the theory that literature and poetry could be summoned by the pro-life movement as as one persuasive force to convince people to come over to our side? Well, I think it goes back to something that precedes even literature, and that's language. Um, you know, so literature is 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 a medium of language and the abortion debate and, and really all of our, all issues, all the ways that we think and the categories that we construct um, are rooted in language because that is what it means to be human. We are, we are creatures that use language and process our experience through language. And from the very beginning, I've always um, of my activism and abortion, I have just always thought about the way language is so central to to the debate. I, I mean, even the terms pro-life and pro-choice are mm-hmm. so laden with, with meaning and significance and they shape the debate, uh, you know, um, they shape the debate in ways that I think are not very constructive. I, I actually, you know, Captain, you probably have and have seen these things, you know, old uh, issues of Time Magazine uh, before Roe versus Wade, where they actually use the terms pro-abortion rights and anti-abortion rights. And I think that's actually, I, I think those terms are the most precise ones that they're, that yeah, they're much more useful. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're, they're accurate there to the point. I mean, I have no problem being called anti-abortion because I am anti-abortion. Um, and, but yet pro-choice is a, is a term that frames the debate brilliantly yeah, um, yeah. for those who would support abortion, but it, it, it really changes the way people think about it. So, so we we think in language and our ability to think about nuances but also to think about the way language shapes our views and what we think um is is central to this debate and to to so many others and so all literature i mean literature helps us to understand the power that language has um, so that's just sort of a more theoretical background. Mm-hmm. But then when we look at actual works of literature that present the nuances of this very complicated issue, um, I have having studied literature over the years, I've just been struck by how many pro-choice writers, poets, storytellers, whatever they may be, often can communicate the power and the complications of the abortion decision 
far better than than the pro-lifers can and in a way that that can actually work against the pro-choice view we just have to be willing to listen and to not just listen to what's on the surface but what's below the surface Mm -hmm. um and so i started paying attention especially when i began to write to teach i created and, and teach a women's literature course um at liberty and i'm just amazed at how abortion is is so much written into women's literature and is often you know but it, it's it's an expression it's like um yeah, because women have been oppressed and abused and denied their moral agency and their spiritual status for you know most of human history and so abortion suddenly becomes you know a quick fix to all that. It's like a false solution, right? Um, a false freedom. So to understand, if we can understand that, then maybe we can actually get to the root problems um, that make abortion seem so attractive, even though to, to, to women, even though common sense tells us that it's, it's a destructive, um, you know, abuse of, right. But not just common sense. That's interesting because a bunch of the examples you cited in the uh, article of Christianity Today, and I, I found a few myself in my own research, one of the reasons I think that some of these poems especially uh, can be such a powerful tool is because regardless of the fact that those who are writing the poems, because uh, it's generally poems that you cite in, in your article, are pro-choice, you cannot pretend that this is a an unambiguous tool of liberation or that this is a hashtag shout your abortion type of experience. Um, you can't even pretend it's a good experience or, or, or an experience lacking moral consequence and even, even moral feeling on the part of the person undergoing it who may think that this is something that's justified in doing because the, the poems that you cite are, are genuinely heartbreaking and one of the themes actually is that, that it is, number one, a child, and number two, that those children are virtually impossible to forget no matter how hard you try. That's exactly it. And, 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 and again, we're in a place now where most people who support abortion can't even articulate those things anymore. They are, you know, because to do that is to go against the current um, prevailing attitude, which is that it, it's a concession to it, to say that abortion is something bad or something um, that you shouldn't feel proud to shout. And so we're seeing a whole set, new set of, um, of descriptors and and terms and language being used to describe abortion that's removing it even further away i think from our from our consciences uh but these early feminists these um second wave feminists of the middle 20th century who wrote these poems um uh, they were being brutally honest in a way that i think um you know we could benefit on both sides to hear from what's some of the most powerful ones that you've stumbled across in your research yeah well the one um the article i'll I'll just read a few lines um from the from the article Mm -hmm. um there was um and of course what i talk about here uh where which i I know you're kind of moving this direction is something called literary apologetics which is not just about abortion but about how literature it can teach us so much truth um uh theological and and human truth um so there is one uh, by Sharon Olds, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and very, very feminist um, and very pro-choice and uh, not the kind of poet, you know, she's just known for her this sexual imagery in her poems and so forth. So certainly not conservative by any means. Um, but she writes this poem uh, 
giving, and I'm not reading the whole thing, but giving a situation, she's, uh, she's comparing the abortion and abortion to a car accident. And right. so she imagines a woman looking out the window at night from her bedroom and she sees the scene and says, cops pulled the bodies out, bloody as births from the small smoking aperture of the door, laid them on the hill, covered them with blankets that soaked through. Um, and she goes on to, you know, to talk about the other kinds of accidents. I mean, it's just, it's a stunning image of what abortion is really like. The kind, it's, it's an image of what is portrayed on many of those signs that pro-lifers carry mm -hmm. um, and get denounced for. And yet this pro-choice feminist poet sees it exactly the same way. Um, but this one is even, that, that one's sort of violent in its imagery, but in another um, poem, this one is so powerful. Um, she writes about the children that she didn't have, uh, her unborn children. She describes lying like love letters in the dead letter office. And the poem ends this way. I can feel just one of them standing on the edge of a cliff by the sea in the dark, stretching its arms out desperately to me. That's one of her unborn children. That one, that one. Yeah. That one is the one actually that, that always hits me the most because the image sort of evokes this vacuum and longing inside you that you're not even the person you might not have undergone that experience, but the words are so brilliantly evocative that it, it, it manages to highlight the missing that abortion creates that none of us can fully fathom because so few people survive abortions, right? I was asking my friend, Dr. Monica Miller, um, how do you use language to evoke what abortion is when you're just talking to somebody, you don't have pictures. You, um, what do you ask them? And she stopped and she said, I asked them, where do you put 65 million bodies? And she says, it's just asking powerful questions that force them to think about what abortion actually is that in some ways are more powerful than a picture. That question, maybe it's because I've seen so many, but, but that picture actually hit me harder than a, than a picture that I'd seen. Um, have you seen these poems, this literature actually impact people? Because the examples, you just gave a couple there, but there's uh, quite a number, about half a dozen Pulitzer Prize winning poets have directly referenced abortion. Then you've got Ernest Hemingway wrote a whole short story on it. F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, um, he references abortion and the beautiful and the damned, um, which is a, is a powerful title considering the, the subject matter. Um, and, and the list goes on. And so it was interesting to me once I started to look at how abortion is represented in literature that it's almost omnipresent, which makes sense because you talk about this tension in yourself between being black and white, but also um, being fascinated and informed by literature. And abortion is, I think, it's it's such a, a morally complex situation that it's almost too um, it's too attractive to pass up if you're a writer that wants to force your characters even into impossible situations. So it's not surprising that abortion would crop up a lot. Um, but have you seen the impact on students of people who have read your article on on the, these representations of abortion in a literary way? Well, I, you know, I can't say that um, that I've you know received any letters from people who changed their minds or, <laughs> or you know have some sort of powerful testimony from it. But I think part of the problem is that. Um, that we, we aren't reading a lot of poetry and literature <laughs> in our culture today, right? Um, and, and this goes back to the point I was making about language and the nuances of language. I mean, we just go on Twitter. I mean, I just cannot believe how many people will respond to um, just say I tweet out an article from the New York Times and they respond to the headline and it's so clear that they haven't read the article. Yeah. 
Yeah. We live in a culture where not only do we not read, we feel free to respond uh, mm-hmm. in ways that will embarrass ourselves um, to something that we haven't read. Um, and of course, that's, you know, reading and reading well is my other sort of passion. <laughs> and, and they seem like, you know, abortion and reading, how do they go together? But this is, this is exactly what you're, you're, what we're drawing to in this, in this program. And I appreciate it so much because, um, because we need to think clearly and deeply about the human experience. And that's what literature does for us. And you're absolutely right. There are reasons why abortion is so prevalent in literature because it is a drama. It is a drama of human life that taps into everything about what it means to be human. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean just the child, the unborn child, but motherhood, choices, agency, sacrifice, um, I mean, I went to I went to an opera a few years ago in another city. knew nothing about the nothing about the play. Had never heard of the of the of the writer uh, of this 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 opera. And wouldn't you know, you know, in a, a three hour op- opera, at the heart of the whole story is an abortion, right? <laughs> I mean, right. it was just I, it was just amazing. Um, it is abortion is the most symbolizes everything about what it means to be human. Um, and so if we can think about that in all its complexity, um, we, certainly there, you know, we, can, we can be understanding about why people have them, but mm-hmm. to really, really understand what it's, why it's so resonant, why it's so dramatic, um, I mean, it wouldn't be if it really were not about human life, and it is. And sometimes when you take the, the, the dual topics of abortion and literature and look at where they converge, one of the things that's most interesting to me about this question is, is uh, when I read your article that, that looked at these different poems and how these poems and these lines from literature could really help us visualize and see the abortion debate in a different way, and I had been looking at, at the different literary figures who had undergone abortions themselves— and it's, it's interesting when you look at what a culture actually is and how literature is informed by songs, films, poems. It's the stories that we tell ourselves uh, that basically make up, make up what the culture is. And then to realize that almost all, and I, he- I hesitate to be so sweeping, but, but it's true. The more I dug into it, the more I realized that abortion had affected almost everybody in the literary scene, at least from the 1920s onwards. So the F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway set that used to hang out in Paris. Everybody right down to the woman who ran their boarding house, who had several abortions and wrote about them. Um, and then going all the way through to uh, three or four of the major Pulitzer Prize and Nobel Prize winning writers here in the United States. People like John Steinbeck, whose books, you know, The Grapes of Wrath, defined an American era. Um, he forced his wife into an abortion because he didn't want a child to distract uh, distract him from his pursuit of literary glory, which he eventually achieved at the cost of both their marriage and their child. She died broken and bitter because he ended up having two children with his second wife. The only reason uh, they didn't get aborted was because his second wife refused to listen to him when he tried to push her in the same direction. And over and over and over again, J.D. or John Steinbeck, F. Scott Fitzgerald, many of the poems, Gwendolyn Brooks, Anne Sexton, abortion is such an enormous part of, of their life story. And in many cases, just... Um, this one tiny event consumed a whole decade before and after this event. And then you look at the body of work that these artists, these songwriters, these these poets and these writers have written, and you just wonder to what extent 
is abortion, this this great missing, this great vacuum that's in the in the background of our culture. We really don't understand who abortion took away from us, and we don't understand how abortion has shaped even the stories we tell ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, and, and now we're in a place where, um, you know, we're seeing the abortion rates decline, which is, which is wonderful. Um, but there are other, other costs along the way too. I mean, I think some people are, are talking about the abortion rate declining simply because uh, people are so um, immersed in social media that they aren't having sex anymore. Um, right. And so, you know, and so there's, there's, there's a lack of, of human, again, it's, it's really kind of the same drama, a, a lack of, of proper human connection and relationship um, that will, that will pay it, pay a toll. Um, and, so we'll probably start seeing literature, up, you know, that reflects that kind of lack of, of connection and, and intimacy. Um, but there's no going back to uh, the lives that were changed, the lives that were ended, um, that, that you're talking about in that, in that period. Um, and then the real irony, as you pointed out in Steinbeck's story, is, you know, he went on to have other children, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and so it's just... It, there are just so many ironies and, and tragedies um, along the way because, because you know, one, one child is sacrificed in order to make way for another, but a whole course of life would have been different if that first yeah. you know, or second or third child hadn't been sacrificed. That's why I say the fusion of abortion and literature, this, this overlap, is it just presents you with these impossible questions that you can't help but ask, but you stare into this black void where there are no answers, like only sort of the echoes of impossible questions. But in some ways that helps you understand abortion better. Exactly, because that is the choice that, I mean, it's the most existential choice that could mm-hmm. be in front of a person, not just the woman, but the men involved, because it is, it is a, you know, a crossroads uh, that will determine the future for yeah. so many people, not just, not just the mother, not just the father, but all of the other people. I mean, it, it's really, it, it's so trite to say, but it really is, it is, um, it's a wonderful life, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. what that film is really about. It's not, you know, it's not about abortion, but it is about wh- how things would have turned out if one life had been snuffed out too soon. That's, I mean, yeah. that's the story of every abortion. So a final question, just so I can, I can combine all of the most controversial things into a single point is one of the things researching um, the literary figures in abortion and, and how abortion has impacted American culture and British culture too, for that matter, is the extent to which the people who told our culture stories were actually predatory pigs. Um, you look at how, how, how John Stein, so some of them we've known, right? We knew Ernest Hemingway was that sort of guy who got away with it because, you know, he was a chauvinist. Um, but, but author after author, after author, uh, demanded that their children be aborted and forced their wives to suffer as a result of this. The number of suicides that took place as a result of male writers forcing uh, their partners into having abortions, especially uh, during the, the beatnik period um, where you've got Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, uh, and those, those folks wrote On the Road, Howl, and, and some of those, those uh, pieces of work that really did define literature um, at the time. You've got women who are jumping out of like third-story windows two days after abortions that they were forced into that they never wanted to begin with. And one historian put it really bluntly. Um, he said, uh, um, children were the price that the women of the beat generation had to pay if they wanted to run with the men. 
And that's about as bluntly as I've ever read it put by somebody who didn't have my ideological bias on the issue of abortion. So I guess one of the things that I find interesting is trying to separate the artist from the art. And I know you've written quite a bit on on the Me Too movement, which is why I'm asking this. To what extent should we uh, see their work differently as the result of the fact that we now know that even though John, John Steinbeck could render a female character in the Great Depression with utmost empathy... Um, that his his first wife died alone and brokenhearted, having been abused and pushed into a, a late term abortion by him, and on and on and on. That that's, that story repeats itself hundreds of times in the world of art and literature. Often among people that we see as the people who you know spoke to our hearts on issues that were the most important. So, when does literature and the abortion industry get its Me Too movement together? Wow. Well. Uh it's overdue. It's long overdue. And I, you know, I think uh, we're all looking at, you know, the films made by Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino, so many differently. And that, you know, that, that is a, that is a really big question about when do we even separate art from the artist? Um, mm-hmm. Of course, my period of study is earlier and it's across the pond. So there weren't a lot of abortions happening in um, 18th and 19th century England, my period of study, but there was a lot of abuse and misogyny. Um, Charles mm-hmm. Dickens is a great example of someone who abandoned his wife and, and their many children and took up with a girlfriend and just treated her horribly. Um, and yet he wrote these novels, you know, that were all about social change and kindness and compassion toward people, uh, especially the poor. And so, um, so from all this, I, th- I think the lesson is not to not to not read those works no. of literature, but to read them with the open, honest eyes that help us to understand how we're all so capable of compartmentalizing and of, of being inconsistent and doing great wrong um, and injustice to others, even as we are advocating for that kind of justice um, for imaginary fictional um, characters. Um, So if we can recognize that in other people, uh, in their art, in their in their films, uh, then I, I think we're actually we can we can see it in our in ourselves better and see it in the everyday real life around us. Um, so I think that that me too uh, abortion too reckoning mm-hmm. is is one that we need to have because it's not the, the examples that you cite are not ones of empowering women and giving them agency. It's the exact opposite. These women uh, were were victims uh, and they paid the price. When I'm such, I'm a huge fan of American literature, it's hard to look at the Grapes of Wrath the same after I know that we got the Grapes of Wrath at the expense of Steinbeck's wife and his first child. And there's, there's no way around that fact. It's a brilliant book, and, it, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's a piece of Americana. It symbolizes an era. It defined an era in the same way that one picture of that really exhausted mother and her two children did. you know. Um, but at the same time, I know what it cost other people for us to have that book in our hands, and I can't work out uh, what I, I totally think of that of that conflict, which is why I figured I'd ask a literature professor. <laughs> well, it's 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 something again we we all need to know. Um, and it, again, it doesn't mean not reading those works, but it means reading them in a way that um, helps us to see um, how we're all contributing to this kind of culture where this where where we where our values are so upside down, um, and uh, and to change that hopefully. Well, thanks a million for taking the time to answer all these questions. 
no, this is a great discussion. It was an honor and I, I hope it's, it's fruitful and helps people to think these things through and, and maybe will um, inspire some people to read some more literature. Hopefully. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, author, literature professor, and pro-life activist. If you want to check out past shows, please head over to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab, and you'll find my podcast there. We have conversations like this every week. If you want to check out opinion commentary, you can also head over to lifesightnews.com. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.